Well, good morning, Crossroads Church. Uh, like Jason said, um, I'm David. I have the privilege of sharing with you a message this morning. Um, if you've never met me, that's, that's totally fine. I'm the youth pastor here, and on Sunday mornings, I'm usually here in this building or this room next to, to us with the junior high. Um, and if I seem nervous, it's, it's simple. It's because I am nervous. Um, like Jason said, Pastor Lucas is running a marathon, so we'll be sure to pray for him. I'm not sure if he understands that driving is way faster, um, but that his decision has allowed me to be here with you guys. So turn into your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Last week we started our Advent uh, teaching series through Luke, and we're going to finish all the way up to the end of the gospel. Uh, we looked at uh, an elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We saw the angel Gabriel give them a great announcement, uh, a holy gender reveal. Hey, you're going to have a son. Also, you're pregnant. Um, and that was, that was really sweet. Um, Luke writes with a purpose in mind that his reader may know the certainty of the things that they've been taught. We can see that in verse 4. He tells Theophilus, hey, I want you to know with certainty the things you've been taught. And so with that in mind, let's consider this, this person, this, this uh, quote real quick. William M. Ramsey was the foremost authoritative voice on all things pertaining to archaeology in Asia Minor. He spent 20 years of his life um, trying to debunk the claims of the New Testament, and especially in Acts and Luke. And upon further investigation, every debunk he tried to find was was found to be solid. And through the course of his studies, he actually became a born-again believer. He quotes, he, he, he uh, says this of Luke, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense, and in short, this author should be placed along the greatest of historians. And that's no surprise to us, because we know that God's word is true, it's been proven over and over. But it's also nice to see a secular person, you know, agree with us. Um, and so he's going, Luke is going to take us to a village today in Nazareth. And I, I can imagine him being an investigator, an investigative journalist, sitting down with Mary and, and asking her questions pertaining to this story we're going to read. And some Bible scholars think we actually have the transcript of those questions, and maybe you've even thought of them yourself, and, and it, it says that Mary, he, he asked Mary, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? <laughs> and then he'd further go on and say, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? And I just thought, wow, that's, that should be put to a song. But anyways... <laughs> That's my intro. I'm sticking to it. Um, one thing that's been helpful to me in my studies is an outline of the section we're going to read. Um, in verses 26 to 28, we see a time, a town, and a teenager. In verses 29 through 33, we see a messianic announcement. In verses 34 through 37, we see a problem of biology. And then in verse 38, we wrap it up with a faith-filled response. So let's read Luke 1, verses 26 through 38, and then we'll pray. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at, this, at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Lord, you knew in your wisdom who would be here this morning. You knew that Lucas would be running a marathon. And so we come with expectation, Father, that you're going to speak to us. I don't know what baggage or or trouble might be on the horizon for those here, but Lord, we know that you are a constant, and you provide perfect peace. So Father, would your word today be light and love and strength for us? Would your Holy Spirit teach us and lead us into all truth? And Father, would you be glorified in our time of study? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first section we're going to look at is a time, a town, and a teenager. Verses 26 to 28 tells us that in the sixth month, Gabriel goes to Nazareth. Now, this is the sixth month of cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy. She's just finished her second trimester. She's feeling all the aches and the bumps and baby moving around. And at the same time, at this sixth month, Gabriel goes to a town. It says that he's going to Nazareth, a city from, of Galilee. Now, a little history, a little background. This town was insignificant, not known for much. There was actually a stigma of this town. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel would say that in John. And so to this, this timing, this sixth month, in this obscure town, the angel Gabriel goes to a teenager. He finds Mary. And he says this to Mary, Rejoice, Mary, you're highly favored. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, we have a little bit of context about who Mary is. It says that she is, uh, she's a virgin. She's never had any sexual relations with a man. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph. And this is a lot kind of like our engagement uh, season. Joseph liked it, so he put a ring on it. But it was much more severe than our common engagement. To be betrothed in Jewish custom was a serious, uh, a serious commitment to somebody. And it could only be broken off through death or divorce. And so if a, a woman was betrothed to a man and her, 
fiance happened to die, she would be referred from then on as a widow. Um, and so this, this type of commitment she was in with Joseph was uh, a legal one. Now, we don't know the accurate age of Mary. Some people might say she was 12. Some people might say she's anywhere between the age of 12 to 17. But that's a pretty good landmark to go for. Custom to, to, our Jewish custom was to have a, a, a family, you know, have a, an arranged marriage. And so if anybody has a three- or four-year-old son, I've got a two-year-old daughter. And if you're, uh, if you're looking, we might, be, we might be in the game. So Gabriel goes to this obscure town in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy to this, this peasant. One Bible commentator called her a nobody from nowhere. And yet Gabriel goes from the presence of God and says this to Mary. Mary, you're highly favored. Mary, in the eyes of the world, you might be a nobody from nowhere, but in the eyes of God, you're a somebody, and the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. I don't know what kind of historical um, tradition you've come from, but some would take these verses and exalt Mary to a position that the Bible never really does. And so we, as a Christian church, we don't worship Mary, but we can learn from her example. We don't pray to Mary, but we can, we can, we can look at her as she's described in the Bible and say, this is a remarkable young woman, a nobody from nowhere, but in the eyes of God, a somebody who's highly favored and blessed. Continuing on, Gabriel's message uh, goes further in verses 29 through 33. Um, first, Mary's reaction. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Hey, Gabe, uh, what are you saying? I don't know you. Um, what are you doing in my house? Also, what do you mean I'm highly favored? I, I live in Galilee, in the middle of, I live in Nazareth, in the middle of nowhere. Um, nothing really good comes from here. And he, Gabriel, calms Mary with this conversation. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel wasn't sent to highlight Mary. He wasn't sent from God to say, hey, go uh, really exalt this young woman. No, he was sent with a message about what was to happen to Mary in the coming months. I call it a, a holy baby gender name prophecy reveal. You know, we have in our, in, our, in our custom, we like to have a big, huge celebration when a, a woman is pregnant and, and we find out the gender and we light off fireworks or whatever. And that's, not, that's not God's method of doing things. He just sends an angel and says... You are pregnant. And so Gabriel lists off seven quick facts about this baby to be born. One, this baby is going to be a boy. You had a 50-50 chance, but he's going to be a boy. Secondly, his name, you're going to name him Jesus. And his name reveals his mission. We learned last week that names were pretty, pretty, a pretty big deal. Zechariah means the, the, the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth, the Lord remembers his oath, the, the, the name... Uh, 
game, and then John would be the Lord is gracious. And so that family that we learned about last week has a, has a whole play on their names. The Lord remembers his oath because the Lord is gracious. But Gabriel tells Mary, hey, you're going to name your son Jesus. And that means the Lord is salvation. So not only are you going to have a son, not only are you going to name him Jesus, but Mary, he's going to be great. Now let's be reminded that this Jesus would come backdropped against a political climate that wasn't very friendly. There was a man in power in Judea named Herod, and he would even call himself Herod the Great. And in a larger context, Jerusalem and Israel was under control by Rome. And you got Caesar, who is pretty great in, in, in the world's estimation. But this son to be born to Mary was going to be great. The greatest man to ever live. Herod came and went. Caesar came and went. But Jesus' effects, his long-lasting impact, reaches forever, all the way into eternity. So not only, Mary, are you going to have a son, not only are you going to name him Jesus, not only will he be great, but he will be called Son of the Highest. He's going to be the Son of God. And God will give him the throne of David, a messianic title, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never come to an end. And maybe we need to pause for a second right now. Maybe that's a word for some of you. At the end of all things, Jesus wins. Rulers of this world, kingdoms of this world come and go, but Jesus wins. Mary would give birth to a son who, is save, who will save his people from sin and death. This son will be great and mighty, and he'll have long-lasting eternal effects for those who place their trust in him. Our Messiah, the reason why we come here, is mighty to save. And we may, not, we may not live like it. We could be so easily and quickly distracted by the chaos and the turmoil in this world around us. But let's not forget, as a people of God, a peculiar people, that Jesus wins in the end. I don't know what you have facing, what you're facing today. I don't know what you're facing this week or this month or this year But I do know that Jesus will be faithful to honor his word for you, that he is for you, not against you, that he's going to work out all things for your good and for his glory, and that he'll never forsake you or leave you. And ultimately, at the end of all things, Jesus will rule and reign. And so some people might look at you and be like, you go to church every Sunday. Don't you know the Bible enough already? You're just some holy book club. No, for those who have come to know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, these words are life to us. They're strength for us. These words give us fuel for the journey that we're supposed to be on. So if that's a word for you, meditate on this fact that Jesus wins in the end. So the conversation goes on, and Mary presents a a pretty solid problem to uh, Gabriel's message. In, verse, in verses 34 through 37, we see Mary counter this. She says, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, the New King James translation talks about knowing a man. And if you're in junior high and you don't know what that means, well, ask somebody else. No, I'm just kidding. It means that she has never had, 
intercourse. She's never had sexual relationships. She's never been intimate with a person, with a man. Uh, she was betrothed, yes, but she was not able to consummate her engagement. And so she's got a problem of biology. Hey, Gabe, I, I trust what you're saying, but one plus zero is still one. And it takes two to tango. I mean, it might be miraculous that cousin Elizabeth is expecting, old as she is, barren as she was proclaimed, but she's got something I don't. She's got a husband. He's pretty good at charades. Well, God's word is filled with stories of barren women miraculously bearing children. Think of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah. Think of Elizabeth from last week. But these ladies had something Mary didn't. They had a husband. God was able to perform the miraculous on those women's behalf through natural circumstance, through the natural order of having children. But for Mary, not so. She's a virgin. She has never known a man. She has never had those relations. Now, this would be an easy, quick contrast to contrast Zechariah's response to these things uh, and Mary's. You know, the angel Gabriel goes to Zechariah while he's doing his duty in the temple. And one thing, Zechariah, should be amazing to you is that there's another person in the temple while you're supposed to be doing a one-man job. Secondly, uh, he tells you these great things that you're going to have a son. And Zechariah's response was one of doubt. And like, yeah, right, dude, we're old. And to that, Gabriel said, you're dumb for doubting. But for Mary, her question is not of doubt, but of curiosity. How will this come about since I'm, I'm single? I'm, I'm, I'm fertile, but I'm lonely. The Bible commentates on this in Luke 1.45. Elizabeth says this of Mary. Blessed is she concerning Mary who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So we know with certainty that Mary's question wasn't one of doubt or confusion, but one of faith and curiosity. And Gabriel goes on to explain, this is going to come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is going to come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very power that was present at creation, Mary, is going to overshadow you and cause you to conceive a child. Now, if you're stumbling over that idea of a virgin conceiving a child, join the club. And if you fully understand it, please let me know, because there are some things about God that will always remain a mystery. If we come to know and believe in an infinite God with infinite resources and wisdom, there's going to be holes in mystery in our faith. But it was important to include this in the record. Luke could just be like, scratch that, that's weird, let's not include that. But it's very important for our faith. The virgin birth points to a sinless Savior boy to be born. And if Mary wasn't a virgin and Jesus came about by just a regular, uh, the, ne- the regular order of things, then he's not Messiah. And his death on the cross, though gory and bloody, really means nothing. And if Jesus died on the cross and was not the sinless Savior of the world, then he stayed in that tomb. But if the word is true, and that Jesus is the sinless Savior of the world, resurrected from the dead, it must point also to the fact that Mary conceived in a, in a manner that no other woman would ever conceive again. 
Many stumble and find fault in the idea of a virgin birth because it just doesn't make sense. They want to know everything about God. They want to package the endless buffet of God's wisdom and power into a doggy bag that they can dissect back at home. But that's not how faith works. Faith takes God at his word and acts as if God is telling you the truth. And so Mary's response is one of faith. How will this work out? I've never known a man. Elizabeth's old. She's got a husband. I'm single. I'm solo. How will this go? Mary, it's, it's not your job. Mary, it's not your job to know the details or to work it out. Just know this, Gabriel would say. With God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. Now, if I were Gabriel, I probably would have started with that. But he didn't. And he says, with God... Nothing will be impossible. Our God that we come to know and believe in is not limited by limitations. He's not limited by our human limitations. He is God. He's infinitely wise and powerful. And he can do things the way he does things. And it's our place to to trust and obey. And maybe this week you're facing a situation that has you questioning Can God really work these things out for good? Maybe you're facing a relational impossibility. You've got prodigal children who have run hard and fast after ungodliness. Or maybe you've got prodigal parents who have run hard and fast after the things of this world. Maybe you're facing a medical impossibility that has you really questioning whether God or not, whether God is faithful to keep his word. Beloved, if that's you, I'd like to remind you that with God, nothing is impossible. I, I could probably, you could probably list out stories in your life where God worked out the impossible on your behalf. Something financial, something medical, a diagnosis that was as good as done, and yet God worked out the miracle on the, the impossible on your behalf. God, who is not limited by limitations, is actively working on yours and mine, on our behalfs together. And maybe these impossibilities that we face are intended to teach us not to rely on our own understanding of things, but to fully entrust ourselves to our Father's care. And maybe we need to be reminded a little bit more of God's word for us. In Genesis 18, 14, The Bible records, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for God to work out? The one who created all things, the one who knows you intimately, every detail, everything you've ever said or done, is it too hard for him to work out the details? Or how Jeremiah would say, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for you. And then later on in that chapter of Jeremiah, the Lord himself would speak, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And of course, these questions are rhetorical because we've come to know and trust a God of infinitude, a God who we can't wrap our minds around his strength and power or his wisdom. 
And so, yes, sorry, no, there is nothing too hard for God. Our God is not limited by our limitations, and nothing is too hard for him. This is a truth worth remembering. This is a a, a promise worth keeping hold of. Our faith in him must cause us to trust him, especially when we're troubled, anxious, or agitated. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Isn't that a great picture? A picture of just peacefully sleeping because God is in control. That God is working things out. Last night I was tossing and turning in my bed because I was, I was nervous. I was like, oh man, this is not working out. And I was replaying the sermon over and over in my head and I was like, I just need to rest. And finally sleep came at 4, 4 a.m. And I was like, all right, cool, I got a couple hours. And I woke up late and I was like, oh, well, faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. God's gonna work it out, right? Well, we look at a faith-filled response, Mary's response to these things in verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's response to God's message was one of absolute surrender to God's plan. Zechariah's filled with doubt. Mary's filled with faith. I may not know how it's going to work out, she would say, but I'm along for the ride. And I think it was the theologian Carrie Underwood who would say, Jesus, take the wheel. And Mary's probably saying the same thing, but I don't know if she knows what a wheel is. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you've said. Complete humility, complete surrender to God's power and will. And so when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary's words come to me. She's speaking words of wisdom. She's saying, let it be, let it be, let it be. That should be in a song. All joking aside, Mary's response to God is one of absolute humility and surrender to God's plan. She was faced with a massive undertaking. And no doubt, for 33 years, people would falsely accuse her of making up this story to cover up her sin. Can you imagine the Nazareth News Network buzzing about this virgin Mary proclaiming that she's received a baby through the Holy Spirit? But Mary didn't concern herself with those things. She wasn't concerned with how people would react to all these things. She was focused on on God's promise to her. Hey Mary, nothing's impossible. Also, you're gonna have a kid. Advent season is a time for peace. It's a time when Christians make a deliberate effort to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We celebrate the Lord of all creation coming down from his throne in heaven and putting on humanity in order to redeem mankind from their sin. 
This perfect son came to establish peace on earth for you and for me. But so often we come to this Advent season troubled, worried, burdened. Maybe that's you. Really trying to focus in on God this Advent season. Really trying to make an effort to celebrate peace. But the things of this world are distracting and demanding and require my attention. So I I really can't be at peace right now, Jesus. I've got too much things to worry about. Thank you, though. Well, I've got three points from our text, three quick points from our text that reveal how we can have peace in the midst of trouble. And my points are summed up in three words. Identity, sovereignty, and humility. We'll look at identity first. In verse 28, Gabriel says, Mary, you're highly favored. Rejoice, you're highly favored. And that's great and all for Mary, who would mother the Messiah, who would go on to a place for women that no one's ever gone before, to raise the perfect kid ever, And to this news, Mary wasn't even freaked out. She wasn't even concerned. Now, when Hannah first told me we were going to have a kid, our kid Eden, this was about two and a half years ago, I just stood in stunned silence. And then I laughed. I was like, look at us. We're just two kids not knowing what they're doing, but the Lord gave us our daughter. And then when Hannah told me we were having a second one, I was like, okay, cool. Been there, done that. I've got spit up on my shirt still. But in our text, God pronounces this identity over Mary. He calls her highly favored. And what a wonderful identity to possess. Now that Greek word, highly favored, translated karateo, which doesn't really mean much because it's all Greek to us, but it's only used one other place in the Bible. And that place is in Ephesians 1, 6. And that phrase, highly favored, is used of Mary, yes. But in the grand scheme of things, it's used of every single believer who's come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So you may not feel highly favored. You may not feel like you're beloved of God. And our, our time here on earth feels quite like the opposite of being highly favored. Christian ideals are put on the back burner. Good is called bad and bad good. Christ is mocked openly on TV. Doesn't really feel like a highly favorable situation for us, God. But Jesus would go on to promise us in John 16, 33, these words I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble, But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So this new identity that Jesus gives us points us and teaches us not to make this earth our forever home. We're just sojourners along for the ride, longing for that heavenly country that God will give to us. And so maybe your trouble, your burden, your hardship is because you've been trying to make this place your forever home. God never intended that for us. He's got something greater and far better in his presence forever. And so let the new identity that God has given you bring you peace this season. Secondly, sovereignty. 
Sovereignty, God's power in God's way in God's time. Look at verse 34. Mary would say, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. I've never had the natural relations that would bring about a kid. How can this be, Gabriel? Mary's problem of virginity wasn't a problem at all. It was actually part of the plan. It wasn't a problem. It was part of the plan. Isaiah 7.14, 700 years before Mary walked Nazareth's streets or she even met Joseph, the Lord God gave Isaiah this promise. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And if you want to go further than that, back in Genesis 3, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And you're looking at anatomy books and biology books, you're just like, that doesn't make sense. Women don't have seed. But Mary's problem was part of God's plan of redemption. There are times in our lives when we, like Mary, we might have faith, curious faith on how God's going to work it out, but in the back of our mind really thinking, I don't think God really can work it out. These times are magnified when we face difficulty and have trouble staring us in the face. But the sovereignty of God reminds us that God is able to accomplish what he planned in his timing and in his power. Perhaps trouble has robbed you of your peace. Perhaps trouble has robbed you of that simple belief that God is for you and not against you. Perhaps the circumstance you find yourself in filled with evil, filled with hardship, but God is able to work out the evil for good. Romans 8, 28, Paul's words to us, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Not just the easy things or the simple things, not the basic things or the elementary things, the hard things, the confusing things, and in Mary's case, the impossible things. God is able to work all those things out, whatever they may be, for good and for his glory. We can have peace in the face of trouble when we rest in God's sovereign power and plan to work all things out for our good and for his glory. Finally, my third point, humility. Look at verse 38. Behold, I'm the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's response to these things is a clear indication that she was submitted to God's plan. Although she didn't fully understand it, she was in for the ride, the journey. The Nazareth News Network would call her a liar, would call her a, an adulteress. She'd be, her very life would be in danger of, of, of killing, of judgment. People would accuse Joseph of a dishonorable act. But she's not concerned with what other people think. She's not concerned with what the town would say. She's concerned with God's word over her. 
She admits that she is the maidservant of the Lord. And it's not the position of the servant to question the master's plan, especially when the master is God himself who is loving and just and kind and holy. It's the position of the servant to receive with faith whatever capacity the master has her serving. Completely humble. Completely submitted to God's plan. Humility is the appropriate response in light of the magnitude of God. Who are we that we, he would be mindful of us? I don't have it in my notes, but a fourth point I'd point out is stigma. Stigma. We mentioned it, uh, I mentioned it a, a, a couple minutes ago, but there was a stigma around Nazareth. Nathaniel, when he hears that the Messiah is from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? The middle of nowhere town, not significant for anything? And to that question, we must answer yes. Not just good, not just great, but God. God came from Nazareth. Jesus Christ the righteous, who came in the form of a babe, who emptied himself of the glory and riches of heaven, to come to earth to save mankind. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes. God came from Nazareth. These humble beginnings of our Lord and Savior point us and teach us that he's relatable. He's just a human like us, yet fully God as well. The man, Christ, who came to redeem us from our sins, who lived a holy and perfect and just life on our behalf, came from Nazareth. So I don't know what stigma people might have over you, what stigma people might have over Christianity or a thought process they have over you who believe in God's word. But Jesus had that same kind of stigma surround his birth. God came from Nazareth with a plan to redeem us. Mary's response of humility, Mary's response of, hey God, you're sovereign, you're gonna do this, that's great, I'm here for it, let me be used in whatever capacity. She would go on to mother the Messiah, who would go on to redeem us on, based on his sacrifice on the cross. So yes, good can come from Nazareth. Good can come from the circumstance you find yourself in today that has you questioning what good's coming from this. What, what good is coming from this heartbreak, from this trial, from this tribulation? Well, God's going to work it out for you. You get to be along for the ride. So if trouble is robbing you of peace. We can invite the worship team back up. If trouble is robbing you of peace this Advent season, let God remind you of your new identity and who you belong to. You're highly favored. You're in the club. God is pleased with you. That identity points us to our, the reality that we're, we're not meant to make this our forever home. We're meant to spend eternity in heaven. Secondly, if trouble is robbing you of peace this Advent season, rest in God's sovereign power and plan. 
It's God's responsibility to work it out. It's God's responsibility to provide the power to sustain me and to fulfill his word to me. And third, if trouble is robbing you of your peace this Advent season, respond in the appropriate manner of humility. Humility. God has brought you here for a specific time and purpose, and he's going to reveal that to you. Let it be to us, according to God's word, how he's going to work it out. We're just his servant. We're just his, his people who love him and serve him, whatever the cost. Well, let's pray, and then we'll transition to a time of communion. Um, if, you don't have, if you haven't gotten the elements, you can go and get it now. But let's pray and, and uh, prepare our hearts. Father, we love you. And we've come to know and trust that you're a good father who cares for his children. I may not know the details of things that are troubling us, but I know that you've come to give us perfect peace. In fact, your word reminds us that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is focused on you. And so, Father, when trouble and tribulation are on the horizon, would we look to you in all circumstances? And would your peace that surpasses all understanding guard our hearts and minds in Christ? Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Well, it's the first Sunday of the month, and we celebrate communion. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29, Paul reminds us of these words. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him, and, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy, an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So before you take communion today, you can take it at your own pace. There's no pressure. But spend this, these next couple of moments in reflective prayer. Is there something I need to confess? Is there something I need to repent of? Is there something I need to praise God for? Whatever it is, spend this time now to search your hearts, to uncover the things that need to be uncovered to the Lord, and then take communion. And when you're done with that, the worship team will lead us in a, song, a couple songs, but there will be people up front who, are, who want to pray with you. So if you're troubled, if, if things have gotten the way of your peace, 
Come seek out help. Come pray with a, a brother or a sister and receive help in your time of need.